Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Rob, I found the paper. And uh, Thomas King is going to uh, speak on Monday, uh, October the 20th, from 1 o'clock at the University Room TH204, which is a Turcot Hall, it's an education building, between Anderson Hall and the Wellness Center, Room 204. And Thomas King is going to speak about his latest book. And uh, his talk is titled, Why is it so hard? The Dilemma of Social Justice in Relation to First Nations. I beg your pardon? Oh, that's not his idea. Thank you. I, I think Knud should have us. <laughs> made an announcement. This is the standalone sp- lecture, and he's going to speak about his latest book in the evening. What time? At 7 o'clock. At seven o'clock Student Union building. Student Union building. What else did I forget to mention? Shaw TV. I gave you the wrong time. Shaw TV replay of this talk presentation will be 7 o'clock in the evening. 7 in the evening. If you want to refresh yourself and uh, re-inspired, watch Shaw TV at 7 every evening. Most evenings. What else did I forget? Am I good to go? Well, like I said, I don't function well before nap. Um, Bonnie, have you finished your dessert? I'm sorry to bring you up again, but I'm sure there will be a lot of questions. Would you like to come up and answer the questions? Or you can begin by uh, making two, three seconds statement which you forgot to mention, I'm sure you haven't forgotten anything. So, please come up to the microphone and uh, please start by mentioning your name and uh, if you want to make any kind of uh, statement in the beginning, two sentences, please. (laughs) No three paragraph. (laughs) Two sentence opening statement and one question. If you have two, three, four questions, you go back to your seat and come back again when there's nobody standing at the mic. <laughs> so, Bonnie, please. Good to be back. Um, And if you do ask multiple questions, just so that you know, I will only answer the easy one. (laughs) Bear in mind. Lisa. 
Hi, I'm Lisa Lambert. Um, we both had the same professor at university, Peter McCormick, who taught us to only breathe on the commas. So there's no such thing as two sentences in my world. I'll just <laughs> rattle on and breathe on the commas. Um, so my question is really around the white noise of ideology that you um, spoke of. And that is a staggering sentence to me as well. Um, but it seems, it reminds me a bit of Ralph Klein. And uh, I remember him saying one time that... Um, that a new government wouldn't bring in different policy because there's there's not um, there's no difference in policy uh, policies either good or bad and he really removed ideology from policy decisions and made it seem like those didn't exist um, I'm wondering if there's a relationship then between Prentice and that Klein era it's a good question um, I definitely think that Prentice is channeling Klein or would like to. Um, I don't believe that he's in a position to do that at this stage. But when you talk about ideology and policy, uh, I think it goes back to accountability. How can you hold someone accountable or a party accountable if you have no measurables? Right? It's a moving target. And I think that unfortunately, uh, the party has forgotten what it's foundation is, what, it's ba what does it truly believe in? And some argue, well, there's only one way to pave a road, and ideology has nothing to do with it. But this is much bigger than that. Um, and I think that, that the PCs need to define their policy, even if it's risky, even if it might be unpopular, but that's the only way this party can move forward, is because without measurables, without ideology, without solid policy to define who and what you are, how do we know we're moving forward? How do we know we're, we're doing it in the right manner? How do we know we're being successful? And accountability means that we have to have those measurables. So to not have them is, is a mistake. So. Hi, I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you so much. You're a breath of fresh air. We just enjoyed um, your tongue-in-cheek presentation, and you seem to say it all. I'm also, one of the hats I wear is um, acting chair of Friends of Medicare. And when you talked about fixing health care, uh, it seems that the uh, conservatives are saying that they did make some mistakes. And especially when they came out about long-term care and suddenly finding 464 beds. They're trying to confuse us again with their doublespeak, sort of 1984. Now they're trying to mix up continuing care with long-term care. And as you know, long-term care was the old nursing homes where everything was taken care of and paid for by the government. <clears throat> Continuing care, I think they're going to morph into something like some of the basics will be cared for and other things will have to be paid for. So I'm just wondering how can we help Albertans to be able to see through fixing what ain't broke and changing changing names on things that um, make us, make, ruin the transparency that he's talking about. And when I say fixing what ain't broke, our healthcare system was so much better with our long-term care positions. And then they took them away, like from the regional hospital and from Carmigay. Thanks. Thanks. I think the issue of, of long-term care, assisted living, uh, I don't know all of the terminology anymore, is absolutely evolving and changing. Um, there's no cookie-cutter solution to long-term care anymore. And there's studies and there have been uh, 
genuinely cared or caring individuals who have researched the different models for how we can provide this. It's no longer about, okay, um, Susie needs to go into, into an old folks home, but Harry, her husband, has to stay home. It's now the, the questions around how can we best meet the needs of the people, the families, keep people together for the long term, even if they have um, medical needs and they require assistance and there's varying degrees and I think that those conversations should be leading the discussion. What's upsetting is the government isn't necessarily listening um, or they hear it but they don't want to make the, because the, the, it's a radical departure from what previously existed and there's a dollar, dollar figure attached to it. However, moving forward, if we're going to be successful with long-term and assisted living, you have to address what the needs of the, of the people are. Who's using it? Why does the old system not work? Some of those conversations exist, but of course, um, major change has to occur for that to, to come to fruition. Um, but I think that it's not a, a matter of glossing over what's really happening because we all have experiences of uh, working with the system or trying to work with the system. So it doesn't matter what we're told, reality is very different because we've experienced it. Um, and I think that that's, that's, that's the gauge right there. Come up. I'll share. A handful of patients is worth more than a bushel of brains, Tad. I'm sorry, Adam. I forgot to mention one thing that we decided at the board those who won't, don't want to come up here to ask questions, please write it down and write, give me the questions in, on paper. We will ask her whenever time allows. Sorry, Ken. Henning. Hi. Hi. I'm Henning Mundell. Henning. That was my wife before me. By the way, your father and I go, I go back decades. Anyway, more my father-in-law. Yeah, okay. I, uh, I was a scientist at the research station. Oh no way! Yeah, oh. my question first. A little comment. You mentioned about Alison Redford and support of caucus, but when she actually was elected, she didn't really have much in the way of cabinet support. Okay, but my real question relates to you mentioned how the UFA was decimated. Then. You didn't mention it, but the social credit was actually decimated. Eventually ended up with two, and then they were independents, and then they were gone. One morphed into a federal politician. Is the Wild Rose sort of a resurrection of the social, former social credit? I wouldn't say a resurrection. I do believe that protest parties... Um, are, are common in Alberta. So I, I would say that it's in the same category. It is, the wild rose has evolved out of, out of frustration and a need for something different. Um, the difference is, is the political climate has changed. By all rights, the wild rose probably should have won the last election or should have had at least a minority in the last election. Um, there's all kinds of factors that contribute to why it didn't. Um, it is, it is a grassroots or, or wants to be a grassroots protest party. Um, the difference is, is that the voter has changed. Uh, voter apathy really dictates, I think, 
how elections are run, unfortunately. There's more people out there who don't care to vote, don't want to vote. It's not going to make a difference. So that allows um, strange things to happen because the voter isn't voting. And that's sad to me because... It, it would be frustrating to, to believe in a party and then vote and to not see any change. Absolutely. So there's, there's two sides of it. But we are in the situation we are now is because we have democratically elected the PCs to govern this province for 43 years. Whose fault is that? The Wild Rose is a response to that. It is a new party. The NDP and the Liberals both have been around since, since the inception of, of, or incorporation of the province. But the Wild Rose has a chance to actually govern. Will it? It doesn't necessarily have the charisma that, let's say, the Social Credit Party did. And, and this, the climate isn't so awful that the province is ready to just boot out the governing party like they did with United Farmers. So that's where the political culture has changed and why protest parties or the Wild Rose might not be successful. So they're in the same category, but I wouldn't say that the situation is the same because everything is different today. Uh, my name is Frank Toth. Miss Ferries, your breath of fresh air. Thanks. You've missed the boat. You should have been leading, 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 leading this province. Unbelievable <laughs> speaker. Thank you ever so much. Anyway, I, I wrote like a letter. <laughs> I wrote a letter recently to the left. I write many letters. And the editor cut out four, three quarters of my letter. The most important part was when this parachuted superman came into the province, semi-clandestinely, uh, the votes have all, whether it's federal or provincial, the, the basic problem, do you believe, is our voting system? I, 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 the part that they left out on my letter, and they're scared to ask, this man keeps talking and promising the world, and the one thing he leaves out is the wherewith. What's he going to pay with? You mentioned that already. I'm a, I've been the forerunner of, ask, of, of royalty, demanding royalty changes. This man hasn't said one word about it. We know that, uh, we know that uh, that's the only thing he's going to hide. We have the same $17 billion that Mr. Lohi left in here, okay? Do you think the total change of the must change in our election system? Frank, would, would do I love you, but what's the question? I asked her. I asked the question already. Maybe you've got the same problems I have. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I knew, I knew electoral reform would come up, and I tried to avoid it. Electoral reform is a huge issue. Um, first past the post, which is what we currently have, is ridiculous. It absolutely, of course, I mean, even in a leadership, uh, I, I think that it's, it's not an accurate reflection of what, of what uh, uh, the people actually want. This is a representative democracy. I do believe that, that it should be proportional representation. First past the post allows majority governments when the people don't necessarily want it. There's, it's very, there's so many elements to it, but let's look at the Redford election, the 2012 election. Allison Redford, or the PCs, had 44% of the popular vote. Wild Rose 
had 34% of the popular vote. Yet that translated into 61 seats for the PCs and 17 seats for the Wild Rose. How does that work? And it's all in how votes are spread out, how in which constituencies, so if you have a greater concentration. So in, in theory, first past the post should work. Unfortunately, you're finding more and more the popular vote does not does not reflect what's actually um, what the seats actually held. So there are some real issues, but electoral reform is, is a very difficult topic to, to address because you would have to transform the system. And I honestly wouldn't even know where to start. But you can, I can say, first past the post definitely has some problems. Thank you. I think that was your question. Thank you for your speech. I agree with Frank, you're one of the better speakers. Although one thing I disagree, I disagree with him, that you should be a leader. Can you hear me? No. 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 But then that you should be a leader who wants to lead these people. I want to go back to Alison Redford. She had no political standing because they didn't like her from the day she was elected. Stalmack a little more, but then you look at Stockwell, they did, party knocked them down, and I could go on and on, but I don't want to be the guest speaker. <clears throat> My point is, when we have no idea of what our leaders should be or no political understanding of how they should govern. Are we done democratically or politically bankrupt because we don't know what we want? Thank you. I can talk louder. Leadership is very important. I believe any party, any organization should be properly led. But leadership isn't about one person, and that's what Redford missed. She didn't bring her team along for the journey. She certainly didn't bring the Alberta people along for the journey. And that's the thing, is a good leader will identify um, the strengths and weaknesses of their team. They will facilitate, they will make them better. Plus, they will engage the public. That is what's missing. Again, good leadership isn't about the person, and yet I'm finding that Prentice is falling into that same trap. It's about him. And what he's basically stated, too, and you even look at his cabinet, is he's brought in two significant individuals into the, into the most important portfolios in our government, and they're not elected. I don't care how much you dislike your caucus. They were duly elected. We chose them, whether you like it or not. And yes, by convention, you can bring in unelected cabinet ministers for a short period of time. But why would you? You're basically stating that you don't like anyone in your caucus enough to give them the two most important portfolios, that they're not capable within the, the existing pool. What does that tell the rest of the duly elected MLAs in his caucus? Talk about demoralizing. So will he be successful as a leader? I'm going to say he isn't yet. <laughs> Bringing in unelected people for those portfolios was risky. And, and if I was an elected MLA, I would be offended. 
My name is Van Christu. Thank you very much for your brilliant address. Um, I really enjoyed uh, every bit of it. I'm old enough, however, to uh, go back to some of the old adages that in democracy we get the kind of government we deserve. I'm not against our tinkering with the system and improving this and improving that. I think we've got to do that all the time and, and, and be aware of it. But we've got to do it with an educated, caring, and dedicated democratic people. And in a, uh, in a petro society like we have, that's so self-satisfied and uh, so narcissistic uh, that nobody even cares to go out, or very few people even care to go out to vote, uh, are we going to be able to improve things by, by tinkering with uh, improving the process, or do we have to get to a basic part of educating people to think for themselves. I don't know how to engage the public. I don't know how to make my generation want to vote. I have no idea. I have discussions with, with my friends over a glass of wine, and politics stresses them out. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to vote. They don't want to worry about it. They have other things to do. Things are the way that they are. They're not even uh, angry. They're just completely disengaged. How do you fix that? And it's getting worse. Um, they don't ask the questions. But then you know what's interesting is that personal accountability is also lacking. I don't need to fix it. Someone else will. The newer generations are, I don't need to worry about getting good grades because I can't get an F. And if, and if you treat me poorly, my mom or dad will come in and show you. We now have individuals who bring their parents to job interviews. So... How do you get them excited about politics? That is, that's the million-dollar question, because I honestly don't know. I believe in the principles of government. I believe that we live in an amazing nation, and I believe that, that what, where we're heading or where we want to go is good and right and just. However, I'm surprised by this power struggle, because I mean, that's all elections are. It's about getting power so that you can get re-elected at the, the next election and doing whatever you can to stay in power. I don't know how to fix this. I do know that at some point it's going to be unsustainable. I believe that governments should exist to provide good services. Right now, they exist to provide jobs. Um, uh, my name's Austin Fennell, and thank you very much for coming to speak to us. Thank you. Um, I want. I do believe that ideology matters, and um, if the Conservative Party does have some basic characteristics to their ideology, um, what are they, and where would you find any hint of them in the current uh, provincial government? I pass on that question. Uh -huh. <laughs> Oh, no. I don't, that's difficult because I'm confused. The PCs are more liberal than the liberals in this province. So ideology is a tough one. Um, and I think that they've lost sight of, of the PCs have lost sight of, of 
where they're going. And they make decisions based on, on knee-jerk reactions. I, I actually don't know if there's a hint of, of true conservatism in there at all. Fiscally, they're definitely not conservative. <laughs> there, is that enough to pass on the question? <laughs> they are not fiscal conservatives. Um, and, and frankly, I think that's one of the most important things that they need to address. How do you spend money? You can collect. I don't mind you collecting my money if you're going to spend it responsibly. Now I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I don't even get into social policy. I never get into social policy. But uh, I think they need to go back to their roots, absolutely. And right now they need to have those, those discussions, and I, I don't think they're prepared to. It's very difficult for parties to do that. Wild Rose is in a unique position because they, they, they're new. They've, they've just gone through, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know they're building their constitution and developing their strategies. And a lot of those are in response to what, you know, what the PC shouldn't do. But I, don't, I, I think that ideology is, at this point is now blurred. There. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks very much for coming back to SACPA. I understand you were here before my time. A long time ago, yes. (laughs) Good to have you back. Uh, My question is basically, are we uh, giving our politicians uh, way too much credit? Because it can be argued they're they're merely just uh, puppets of the corporate agenda. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. Being, being involved in municipal government um, for a number of years, I, I see the balance between the elected official and administration, and you need both to be successful. Uh, elected decision makers have a very important role, a governance role, absolutely. And then the employee is supposed to, to, to make it happen and do it in the proper manner, make sure that it's within budget, all of the logistics of, of, of operational realities. I do think that there is now a shift away from uh, the elected official being just about governance, and they do dabble in areas uh, that they probably shouldn't. They're given a lot of power, and I think they like that. They, being a, a cabinet minister is a very prestigious role. They hold a lot of clout. They determine where grants go. They determine which projects move forward. And they can unilaterally change the, the landscape of the province. Right? You know, they can make promises and retract them. Fort McLeod. The damage to that community from a, from a broken promise, they're still feeling the effects of it. This, these are not games. This is serious. So politicians sometimes forget that. So I think we need to go back to the balance of, of the two need to exist side by side, working together as a team to make the vision a reality and to do it in a fiscally responsible way. Can that actually happen? At the municipal level, it's difficult. And that's at a, on a small, small scale. You, know, you look at your cities, your communities, your towns. They have trouble balancing between the role of the decision maker and administration. The provincial government at this point is so far out of control. I mean, the bureaucracy alone is out of control. There's no way the minister knows what's going on down below. They, have, you know, they could have 150,000 people underneath them but they also should know their role and stay out of the administration side. But it's, it's, so it's a balance. Currently, that balance does not exist. 
in my humble opinion. Not too humble, I don't think. <laughs> uh, th- uh, my name is Mary Shillington. Thank you, Bonnie, for an interesting presentation. You said a couple of things in the uh, answers to questions that uh, cued a thought. A few weeks ago, we had Dr. Lois Wilson here, who for four years was an independent senator. And one of the things she stressed was about ethics in politics. And so I hear you saying, you know, the young, the people your age think somebody else should handle it, that they're not responsible and they don't have any, any input or whatever. So they don't have kind of an ethical, uh, a larger group concept of how each of us are responsible for the people around us. And also you can see that in the apathy as far as people voting and so on uh, and disinterest. Uh, 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 current candidate is out canvassing and says, not, not meeting up with opposition, just disinterest in politics. So, uh, interesting. So, what would you say uh, to uh, a future candidate or a candidate or a current elected MLA or MP about ethics? What do you think needs to happen? And what ha- needs to happen for each of us around ethics and responsibility for for our cities, our country, our province, and our country? Big question. It is a big question. I wish there was a pill you could give people to instill integrity, honor. You unfortunately can't teach us. Now, to be fair to my generation, I am going to qualify my statements. The pressures on, on young families and, and my generation are significantly different than they were 50 years ago. So for them to not have time is a legitimate excuse. I don't like it, but it is legitimate. Because when you're that busy, I I get how the political system is not a priority. However, ethics. In an ideal world, I believe that, that honor, integrity, and ethics should be inherent in the way that we govern. I also think that good governance should be, you, didn't, you shouldn't even have to discuss it. If you're going to be an elected official, if you're going to run for office, good governance should be a no-brainer. Yet I don't believe that it is. You have to teach people about good governance and what it is. And, and ethics, I, you cannot teach people that. I think they have to, you're almost, you're taught it as a child. Your community helps instill it in you. And I don't know if there's a, a quick answer because there isn't. I, and I think that, unfortunately, the people who, are run, who should run for office don't necessarily run for office because they don't want to be subjected to, to the criticism. And so those that do have solid ethics, who do believe in the principles, who don't want to be frustrated are choosing not to run. And that's one of the problems. If the right people were running for the right reasons, were genuinely interested, I believe that that citizen engagement would increase. I believe we would be more interested if, if politics was more accessible and if we felt that we had a voice and if we felt that we were part of the journey. Right now, I love politics and yet I don't feel like I'm part of the journey. So how do I inspire? How, do, how would you inspire others to be interested in politics? I have no idea. I honestly don't, because it is far harder than it should be. On that happy note, <laughs> woo, there's hope somewhere.
Thank you, Bonnie. I don't see anybody standing at the mic. This is fabulous.